Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. So if you're like everyone else that we talk to in the world, the pandemic has caused a lot of pain for a lot of people in a lot of different ways. Just getting back to our old working patterns, though, isn't going to be adequate. And we're going to have to find ways to help people who work with us and for us to heal, to recover, and to reconnect. And the topic for today is actually how we go about doing that. Now, we're going to use a little bit of unusual language. I want to use the language of trauma. And this is not like a traditional traumatic experience. That might be something you think about as a horrendous headline news story or war or something along those lines, and it involves a very select set of people. This time, the trauma experience, as it is, has been shared. And therefore, because of that shared experience, it's easily ignored. So we want to use this language because we think it has a particular point that's helpful to understand what people have to process. And then we want to talk to you about how, as a leader, you can deal with this, you can recognize it, and you can help your team heal. And I think you're going to be surprised. It's a whole lot easier than you might expect at this point in time. So my guest today is Darren Overfield. Darren's an organizational consultant, executive coach, and educator. He's authored articles on leadership and team development in a range of publications, including Harvard Business Review Online, Chief Learning Officer Consulting Psychology Journal, Talent Quarterly, and most recently with me in Strategy Plus Business. Darren blends hands-on management experience with a very practical way of of applying psychology to the workplace, and he helps executives become more effective leaders and teams improve their experience. He's trained as a behavioral scientist, I should add. Um, He was an adjunct faculty at the Center for Creative Leadership for 15 years, where he's done a host of things before becoming a consultant. Darren held management positions in General Electric and at Genworth Financial. So Darren, welcome to the show. Thank you, Wanda. I really appreciate your inviting me into this conversation. Such an important topic, and it affects all of us. It does affect all of us. I think it affects all of us in ways that we haven't even thought about. Um, Why do you care about it? It's my opening question always, but why does this problem matter to you? Yeah, it's interesting to me. For the last 15 years, you kind of touched on my background, but for the last 15 years, I've focused on helping organizations improve the quality of their leadership. I've helped uh, executives have teams that are more effective. And one of the things that I love about this work is it's always different. It seems like every call is slightly different. There's a range of, of different things that we, we cover. There's, there's great diversity. But one of the things that I've noticed in the last two years is that it's, it's all changed. Every single conversation that I have with a leader now is in some way related to the pandemic or return to the office. The problem, though, is that while the topic is universal, managers remain stymied. So when I reflected on this experience, it's happened over and again, the question is, well, what are the key drivers? So what's leading to what we know of as the great resignation? What's, what's causing this, this issue? And I think one way to understand it, one driver is understanding the impact of the trauma that we've all been through. Yeah. 
I agree with that. I, I want to go back to something you said, though, before I pick up the word trauma and talk about mm-hmm. why the word trauma and what we mean by trauma and how we say that and all of that. I, you said every conversation you're having with leaders, and I know a bit about your work and the senior teams you work with and the teams that you coach, as well as the individuals. You said every conversation is in one way or another about the pandemic. I presume you don't mean how are you surviving the pandemic? What's happened? Have you gotten COVID? The chit chat that is casual. You mean the how the pandemic is actually impacting the team's performance. So say a little bit more about that. Sure. I mean, of course, the, everybody talks about how this is impacting them personally, and that's that's important. But you're right. It, it the the pandemic. Uh, and the fallout from it in, uh, affects every organization, large and small, depending, and no matter what industry uh, people are in. And so what I'm noticing is that there's a question about how do I best help my people? How do I return to work? What does that look like? And which is an interesting statement in and of itself, returning to work. It's like we haven't been working for the last two years. <laughs> the employees would tell you a very different story. Uh, so there's there's a range of things, but almost in, in every case, there's this question of how do we do something none of us have ever done before? And that's the piece that that I think is common to, to every executive that I work with. Um, you know, and people who listen to me know that I also believe one of the things that is going wrong is the stress levels are and were high before. But I think they're off the charts at the moment. I think our bandwidth left to deal with it is just shot. And you can no longer say to people, well, that's your private life. You sort it out. It's showing up in the day-to-day interactions, performance and conversations we have. And I think that's a result of the pandemic as well, from my point of view. So I'd agree with you. Every conversation is ultimately the impact of the pandemic in some way or another. Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, we've just, uh, Darren and I've just published an article about this, and we use the word trauma, and we've called it collective trauma. So, Darren, I want your point of view. Why use the word trauma? Because we typically think of that as post traumatic stress disorder, um, something soldiers may have gone through, other, you know, kind of wartime crisis. We take them as a major crisis. So, why use the word trauma here? Yeah, so I would say two reasons. First, it's a provocative word. Get your attention. And so I think that's important. We don't typically talk about trauma in the workplace, as, as you alluded to. Secondly, and I would say most importantly, it's the most accurate way to describe what we've been through. I mean, stop and think for a second. Almost 6 million people have died from a virus. That's not part of our narrative as leaders. We control things. We like to be able to, to step in and have a strategy. None of us three years ago would have expected what we've been through the last two years. We have really faced a very real threat of death for ourselves, for our loved ones. And the behaviors that we see from people in the workplace are consistent with how humans respond to traumatic events. So I agree with you. This is not exactly the same as uh, going through a war experience or or an act of violence. But if you look at what people are experiencing physiologically and psychologically, there's a lot of commonality in terms of how, as humans, we, we're dealing with that. Yeah. All right. Now, what I'd agree with you on that one. It sounds um, exaggerated to use the word trauma. Mm-hmm. But if you think about 
how much we've had to worry, would we survive or not? Would our families survive? And if you think about how many people have lost family members, I can't tell you how many of my clients have lost a significant family member and could not attend the services in any form. And that, you know, just the experience, that's pretty traumatic. That's just a tough grieving, you know, lack of grieving process that has happened. Okay. I think we discount it as trauma because it's been shared. Mm-hmm. We've all experienced it. So it's hard for me to say, oh, I've had a really, really tough time because everybody's had a really tough time. Mm-hmm. So why do you use the word collective trauma? I agree with you. It's become normative. And because it's become a normative event, we don't talk about it. We don't think about it or conceptualize it as trauma, which I think it makes it a whole lot easier to dismiss. And so some of the things that we're seeing truly, if, if somebody had been through an automobile accident, let's say, and they were, they were behaving at work the way we see some people engaging, things that, that we're seeing from folks, it would be very easy to say, well, of course, they went through a very traumatic experience and, and that's understandable. And here's some things we can do for them to get some help. But because we've all been through this experience at the same time, we often just overlook that and try to gut it out and, and just move on. And, and that clearly is not working from the conversations I'm having with leaders. It's not working from the conversations I'm having with employees either for the re- for the record. And I agree with you. I think this is where a lot of people are getting disillusioned with their management, with their organizations, with their jobs, because having been through this experience, you stop and say, wait a minute, am I happy with where I am or what am I doing? Mm-hmm. So um, you've mentioned this a couple of times, the... Um, Signs and behaviors that we're seeing in people are very similar to what you would say we would see in a classic traumatic experience. Just list those out so we just can be aware of those. Yeah, and I think your 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 distinction that, that that you made at the top of the of the show is an important one. So there is a difference between somebody having a clinical disorder like PTSD and people showing signs of trauma. So I, I want to make sure that that's clear. But just think about yourself and other people. We have all, to some extent, experienced the decreased capacity to deal with emotions. So our own emotions, how we regulate ourselves, and, and how we help other people with that. Uh, increased displays of anger. Uh, so being able to deal with anxiety and depression, sleep issues, uh, difficulty concentrating, kind of spacing out or having memory problems. I mean, it's, it's not uncommon for people to joke about COVID brain, you know, this idea that, uh, you know, we, we pick up the phone to send a text to someone. And before you've typed in the message, you forgot who you're trying to text. Those are signs and symptoms of trauma. Again, they're not clinical manifestations like PTSD, but they are important and they are consistent with how humans deal with trauma. Well, and if you go back to somebody who'd been through a car accident and it had, you know, a close brush with death, um, you would see some of the same things. It wouldn't be unusual that their sleep patterns were interrupted. It wouldn't be unusual that they have more anger than normal. It wouldn't be unusual that their mood was more volatile, that they couldn't control their mood as much. It wouldn't be unusual that they're having trouble concentrating um, and not because they have a brain injury, just because of the experience, the trauma. And if you think about what's in the headline news of what we're seeing as people experiment, I'm seeing this and I'm hearing it in everybody I'm coaching. Um, can't manage, can't regulate the emotions, much more volatile, a lot more yelling going on, a lot more blame and attack and anger happening, 
a lot less sleep, a lot worse sleep patterns, weight gain, weight loss. We have all of those. And I think the part we're not count, we're not measuring is the impact on productivity, the impact on concentration, the ability to actually get the work done. And all that's doing is making it worse, I think. Okay. So collective, collective trauma, not a clinical disorder like PTSD, which would have very, would be a different process, but still we've been through trauma collectively and we discount it. So let's talk for a minute about what we know we need to do to help people hear from trauma, heal from trauma. And again, I'm not talking about the process of healing from PTSD. I want to talk about regular traumas, if there are regular traumas. Yeah, I think it's a great question. And you know, if we, we go back just a second to headlines, if you look at the difference between rates of anxiety and depression in 2019 versus 2021, and I'm, I'm getting my data from the American Psychological Association, 2021, four to five times, depending on the study you look at, four to five times higher rates than what we saw in 2019. Obviously, people who are represented in those statistics come to work, many of them. Okay. So I think it is important not to gloss over the fact that there are some people coming to work who in fact do need professional help. So I'd say the first thing is it's important that we assist people who need professional assistance in receiving it. And we need to notice the people around us who are struggling, people around us who are not are not able to do what they used to do. You mentioned productivity being lower. So when somebody uh, had been performing at a certain level and that's changed, being willing as a leader, as a manager to step in and ask about that uh, and help people get the help that they need. So I, I'd say that's the first thing, but you're right. In the, in the majority of cases, uh, the, the symptoms you see are less severe. So I would say what's helpful for folks are things like self-care. So getting enough sleep, getting sufficient exercise, paying attention to what you eat. I mean, those are always important kind of base of the pyramid type things, but they become really important when you're dealing with something traumatic. Mindfulness practices, uh, getting in touch with your feelings. So something as simple as keeping a journal. I don't mean a diary, but a journal. How are you feeling? What, what's your mood? Being able to track those. Uh, a gratitude journal can be very helpful uh, in, in moving forward uh, through, through trauma. But also receiving emotional support that comes from connecting with other people. So that's a really helpful thing. Uh, And it's also something in short supply when we've been socially distanced and the way that we work has been so disrupted. You have to find new ways of connecting with people that you used to just walk down the hallway and step in their office or or stop in their cube. That that is different now. Right. Um, I want to come back to how we ask for help. But let me say on this notion of emotional support. One of the things that I think has happened over the pandemic is that the number of meetings had doubled. Mm-hmm. And most estimates, Rob Cross included, would say it's two times the number of meetings. And that means it's two times the number of actions coming out of meetings. And we do that largely because we want to stay connected. We want to check in with our teams. We want to do whatever. All right. But what that means is our meeting time now has shrunk. So it's a very tight agenda, and it has left zero human contact support kind of conversations. You get on the phone, you're straight to the task, finish the task, thank you very much, bye. And half the time, you don't, even if you have video, you don't feel like you're looking at the other person in the eyes. You don't feel like you're making that connection. They look like they're distracted. 
It's just hard in this virtual world to feel the emotional connection and support that we might do a better job of if we were in the office and we might not also at the same time. So I think it's a huge need. It's like it's bigger need than ever because we're so deficit and we haven't been able to do it. And I just want to emphasize how important that is. Okay. And I also want to say, I want to highlight another piece of Rob Cross's data that he says, looking at thousands and thousands of examples, that the within team collaboration has gone up. Meaning as a manager, I reach out to my direct reports. I will look a lot at taking care of them because that's what I do as a good manager. But the cross-team collaboration, meaning me to my peers, has gone down, which means I now have a very smaller set of people that are actually trying to provide emotional support. And I think that makes it harder all the way around. Yeah, at a time, it's interesting, at a time when it's also important that we work more collaboratively across the organization as it relates to things like returning to the office and and being able to coordinate the activities from one division with another, that becomes really important. And yet, those social bonds are breaking down at a time that you need them the most. Right. So this notion, so we talked about the need for self-care, which is just me doing all the things that I need to do, the -hmm. physical, the sleep, the exercise, the spiritual, the food that I eat, all of that is stuff that's going to help, particularly under trauma. There's all the mindfulness practices. There's all the gratitude journals. And I can just tell you personal experience as well as coaching experience, having people keep a journal of how they're feeling, the fact of writing it with a pen Mm -hmm. rather than typing it in a keyboard seems to have an important impact in terms of healing and then the emotional support. Now, let me go backwards before we take this too deeply into what managers can do. You said before this that there are people who are coming to work who probably do need professional support services. Mm -hmm. Most organizations have something along those lines, some employee helpline, but very few of those are designed to deal with the capacity, I think, that's coming through or the trauma that people have experienced as well. So those may need some shoring up. Now, I'm sitting here as a manager going, Darren, how do I ask, do you need real help? (laughs) Do you need professional help without having somebody want to hit me? Like, how do (laughs) give me some advice on how we ask that question in a reasonable way? Yeah, so I think being able to notice what's going on around you and reflect that back and say, you know, if I think about what was going on, what what I've seen from you historically, you've been... really high productivity employee, always coming into the office, excited about your job, engaged. I've noticed a real change over the last little bit. And I know this has been a hard time for a lot of people. I'm just curious, how has this been for you? It's an open-ended question. It's broad. It's not getting in somebody's business. What I think most managers would find is rather than that person feeling like they want to punch you, they would actually feel relieved that they can talk about it if it's done in the right way. And so I, th- I think what's important is to notice what you're seeing, to reflect that back and, and just ask how the person is doing, uh, giving space for that. I liken that too, that you normalize it. We've all been through a rough time. It's all, yeah. it's been hard. I know stress levels are high. How are you coping? Is You didn't use that word, but I might use that word and just get people to talk. I also think if you've got a good relationship, you'll see a glimmer of it 
sliding across their face for a moment. And that glimmer is often the clue that you've hit something that is actually really quite sensitive. All right. So, and then I suspect the next call is what services do we as an organization have available or what do you need as an employee that would help you kind of refocus and regroup? Is that where you take it? I would, I would say that certainly could be part of it. It could also be that there's a person who really has reached out and is getting those services, is doing all the things they need to do um, and supporting them in that. So it may be that they need some flexibility and time off. It may be that there's some things that you can help with in other areas that allow them to go to the appointments they need to go to and, and that type of thing. So yes, it may be helping them find those services, but it may also be providing support in uh, being able to use the services they've already found. Okay, fair enough. Um, and that would mean I don't start with, I notice you're away from the desk all the time. What's going on? Yeah. Exactly. It, it's a per- <laughs> to me, it's a personal conversation about, hey, I'm, I'm noticing you human to human. It's not about I'm your boss and I'm, I'm looking at the number of hours you're working. And, and, and that is a difficult balance to strike, particularly, as you say, if that relationship isn't strong. So being able to build stronger personal relationships with your, with your folks, with your colleagues, with your direct reports becomes really important in this. Okay. All right. Um, I want to talk about a very simple behavior that um, which is I'm going to label as just listening. And I'm going to say, everybody's going to say, yeah, yeah, yeah. I listen. And you and I know coaching in leaders and coaching teams that most people don't listen very well. They listen to respond as opposed to genuinely listen. But you have an experience from undergrad that I want to hear about because it gets pretty powerful story. So tell me about your experience and what happened and what you learned out of it. So when I was in college, I volunteered for a community-based crisis hotline. And as a psychology major, I was looking to be able to, to get into graduate school and having experiences that, that allowed me to, to be able to, to understand, hey, is psychology something I want to pursue? And my assumption was this would be a lot of mental health uh, kind of, of related calls. And much to my surprise, it wasn't. So very few of the callers um, involved mental health issues. There, there were some, and we received training on that. But the vast majority of people were going through a challenging time, a difficult situation. They needed some support. And the way that we were trained really surprised me. So volunteers were not professional counselors. I mean, I was a, I was a college student Many of the other people going through this training were kind of average, regular people. Some were retired, uh, some were working. Some, I mean, there, there wasn't anything really distinct about any of those uh, folks. And, and again, none of us were professionally trained. So what was interesting is that we were trained in a way of listening and reflecting. All that we could do, and I guess I put all in quotes, is to, is to listen and reflect. We did not ask questions. We did not provide advice. And it, it, it was very challenging to do at the beginning. But what was interesting, and, and I guess the other thing I'd say too, is I was, I was a bit skeptical. I thought, yeah, come on, this, this really isn't going to change anybody's experience. But after some time on the phones, what was interesting is many of these folks would call back. And you never spoke with the same volunteer. It was never disclosed who you talked to. But you started hearing these callers say things like, I couldn't have done this without you. You helped me get out of a difficult spot. 
And it was really interesting to me how much something so simple as, as listening, as reflecting back, as allowing a person to feel heard. And I think there's a difference between listening. I mean, I, I might be able to answer a multiple choice test about something you say, but if I don't give you the impression that I'm connected with you, it's, you, you don't feel heard. And I think that's the important thing. Carl Rogers referred to it as unconditional positive regard. I think that's what we're trying to create as an environment. But here's what stuck with me. So all these years later, it just seems to me that if a group of regular folks who volunteer their time can learn a skill that improves the well-being of complete strangers, imagine what a group of really smart, motivated leaders could accomplish by learning the same skills and applying them with their employees. So to me, that's a very hopeful thought. And it's one way out, potentially, of this, this tough experience. Okay. Feeling heard. I certainly know that in my own life, how powerful that is to me for somebody who, feel, who I feel has really understood what I'm saying and what I'm experiencing. Whether they agree with me or not, I at least feel heard by them. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure you have that same experience. Okay. And I like the Carl Rogers unconditional positive regard, but that's a big phrase, unconditional positive regard. Uh, uh, Translate, how do I do unconditional positive regard as a leader, a manager? Well, so I think it starts with truly appreciating people as much as you say you appreciate people. So as a leader, we, we all talk about people being our most important asset and talent, the most important thing. But I think it's getting in touch with why is that true? Why are the people on your team important to you? And getting to know them as people, being able to understand what's important to them. What do they do outside of work? And again, not in a a creepy looking into your, getting in your business way, but just in a genuine way of knowing that in order to work well, we have to know each other well. Uh, So I think that's the start of it. But I think it's also then having the curiosity to notice facial expressions, to notice body language, to notice that that glimmer that you talked about when something goes across a person's face and to ask about those things. You know, hey, I noticed you really perked up when we talked about this topic, or it seems like you're really excited about this or that. Those seemingly small things can make a big difference. Uh, And that also allows you to have the relational capital so that you can have conversations that, that go a little bit deeper. Okay, so getting in touch with why I say that people are my most important asset or why my team is important. And that means why everyone on my team is important, even the ones that I find more challenging than the others. And knowing something about each of them. So knowing about their outside interest um, in work, maybe something about what they really care about, what they'd like to learn, also another easy and safe one, and where they're at their best. You know, what kind of environment puts them at their best? So if I if we just start with those, that's a pretty basic place to begin without feeling like I've invaded somebody's personal space. All right. Exactly. And then being able to notice the facial expression. So this is a shout out. If you're trying to do this virtually, you need video because you cannot do it with just audio. It doesn't work. All right. So I've gotten in touch with, you know, how why I really do appreciate each of my team members. Is that enough to give me this unconditional positive regard or do I need to do more? It's a good start. And I think you, you hit on something really important, Wanda. There are going to be some people that we immediately connect with and this is really easy and there's going to be other people that it's more challenging. And so expect that. 
but I would say for the people that it's more challenging with really getting in touch with the value that they bring to the team and being able to share that with them. You know, we, we tend to think about feedback as a, as a negative thing. I'm going to tell you when something went wrong. How about if you tell the people that work with you what you appreciate about them? That may be a way to start building some of that. Again, you have to do it very genuinely. This is not manipulation. I'm not, not saying that at all. Uh, but being able to explain to somebody, hey, you're a value member of this team. And, and, and here's why I say that could be a good start. Yeah. I can't tell you how many times I've said to people in coaching, and they'll, they'll come and describe a relationship peer, senior, boss, junior, that isn't going very well. And I'll say, so what do you value about the person? Or what do you appreciate? What are they good at? And, and I say, you have to find one thing, one thing and show it. And then, you know, 99% of the time, they'll come back to me six months later and say that piece of advice that you gave me was amazing. It completely turned the relationship around, which is kind of stunning when you think all I do is say, find one thing you value and show it. Okay. All right. So yes, some people are easier for me to connect with. Some are harder for me to connect with. Um, I'm in tune with what I appreciate about them. I'm in tune with sharing what I value about them in a genuine, not a manipulative way. All right. Is that enough to give me unconditional positive regard? I think there's two other things that I would point to. Uh, one of those things is making, sh- making sure that it's a reciprocal relationship. You're not just asking for them to share. You're also sharing. Being careful, it doesn't become a monologue. This isn't about you. It's about a relationship. So if you're asking another person to tell you what they like to do, sharing more about your personal life, what your interests are, what you care about, what your values are, those things become important. Uh, The other thing that I think is critically important is asking good questions to draw them out, right? So that's the other thing that has to be important Uh, uh, around projects they're working on around, yes, things they care about, but also making sure that that balance is tipped much more towards the question asking as opposed to the advice giving. Yeah. I think um, we, so reciprocal, let me just comment on that one. I can't tell you how many leaders have to initiate that disclosure a bit in order to get people comfortable reciprocating back or initiate that failure or that vulnerability just a tiny bit in order to get the return. And it is the basis of building trust. You know, I open up a little bit, you open up to me and off we go. Questions. I think we all way underestimate the importance of having a good question. And I like to think that we all should have five or six questions in our back pocket that you pull out for different questions. So, okay, Darren, what are your favorite questions? You're leading a team. What are your favorite questions? Oh, wow. It depends a little bit on, on the, the, what the team's working on, but, but trying to ask questions around things like, what are you excited about? What gets you jazzed about this project? Uh, when you think about knocking this out of the park, to use a, an, an American baseball analogy, what leads to a home run? You know, what would you most like to learn uh, in, in, as we go through this, this, this project or this, you know, this, this team-related activity? Those are questions that are pretty top of mind for me, typically. Uh, but I, what, what I would encourage, what I would coach leaders to do is to, to anticipate where they are with their team, life cycle of a project, for example, what's most challenging, and think about what those questions are that get the energy in a positive direction. Moods are contagious. So how do you get a positive mood even if you need to have a negative conversation? Okay. So what do you want to learn? What gets you excited? What's going well? What are you proud of? I've took variations on that theme. Mm-hmm. My favorite is, 
what would you do if you had complete control? Mm, that's a good question. Getting people to think about, you know, not sitting waiting for permission. It's just sort of, what do you think? All right. And then how do we get there? Could we do that? What would that look like? Et cetera. Yeah. Um, and there are books and books and books on this one. Um, I know one of our favorites is Michael Marquardt's Leading with Questions, but I'm also a fan of Bob Tedes. Um, He's got dozens of books, any number of which are fairly free. So highly recommend some of those questions as well. All right. So let's return to the last piece of this. So we've talked about unconditional positive guard. We've talked about um, actually appreciating why people are important to you, actually showing why it is that people are saying it out loud to them. We've Mm -hmm. talked about reciprocity in the relationship, you sharing a bit as a leader. And we've talked about having questions to draw people out. So -hmm. they begin to open up. Now, help me understand. You said, I'm going to listen. I'm going to listen intently. Focus solely on you. And then you said, reflect back. What does that mean? Reflect back. Yeah. So what, what it doesn't mean is parrot. What it doesn't mean is just take what the person said and give them the same words. What I found so useful in this, this helpline experience, and this was in the early nineties. So there was no video call. It was all voice to voice. So I didn't have any of the, the nonverbal cues, but being able to listen to someone and say to them, I hear you saying that. It sounds as if you feel blank. It's amazing. The person on the other end of the line, the person you're talking to across the table as a manager, when they say, yeah, you got it. Exactly. And another thing. And they begin to then tell you that thing. Or, and and what a lot of leaders that I coach will express is, well, what if I get it wrong? And that's actually not a problem. It's not a bad thing because what you may be doing is reflecting back to a person what you heard them say, and they realize that what they're saying and what they're feeling are not the same thing. And so if they say, no, that's not right. Okay, well, what is it then? That's actually a very positive thing. So part of the the trick here is as a leader, unhooking from being right. It's Mm -hmm. about being effective. And so effective means you're helping the other person experience whatever it is they're experiencing, understanding that. And sometimes you, you need to say something that's different than what you thought you were going to say when you started. But the process of, of listening to someone, reflecting it back, they then realize, oh man, there's more going on here than I, than I recognized. So we need to put leaders through a crisis a not hotline experience, I think, to get the, the practice on this. I don't mean that. I'm just joking here. Mm-hmm. You said a really important thing there, Darren. Um, it's unhook from being right. Um, so one of the things that you know this show is predicated on is that we learn to lead when we have more answers than the team has. And that means that I learned that my job as leader is to have the solutions, be able to fix the problem, know people, tell people where to go with a good intent, not with a dictatorial intent. And then when they come to me for advice, I know what to do next, or I can do it myself for them. And this is the polar opposite of this. This is unhooking from having the answer, the solution, being the one who can fix it, the hero, and being right. Or being in control, even, for that matter, is another piece of this one. Yeah. All right. So I'm starting then with this unconditional positive regard, which is about appreciating people and showing it and showing a little bit of openness and vulnerability myself and having a good question to open, to draw people out. And then my job is to just listen but to listen and reflect back, not to parrot back, but to paraphrase what I've heard. I hear you say, 
it sounds like this is the biggest concern. It sounds as if you think X, where it sounds like you are feeling Y. And stop. Let the person respond, react, and so on. I'm going to add a benefit to this one. I swear this is one of the single best tools available in dealing with conflict. Because 90% of the time, two people in a conflict just have actually never stopped to understand where each person is seeing the situation where they're coming from. If you get that solved, you can also find the solution between the two of them, usually, usually in the work. I'm not talking about world peace, but at least in work, we can get there. And I agree with your statement that you made earlier, which is if a group of college students, volunteers from the community, retirees from all walks of life can learn to do this and has a powerful impact of people in a bit of a crisis, imagine what we could do as a manager inside an organization with just unconditional positive regard, listening and reflecting back. All right, Darren, that's a perfect place for a break, I think. So with me today is Darren Overfield, um, an organizational consultant, executive coach, and educator. I should say Darren is great at helping teams understand how to function more effectively as a team and certainly a lot of work coaching leaders. We'll be right back. When we come back, I want to talk about some additional data on this whole great resignation and some hypotheses about what might be driving it as well as what else it means you can do as a manager to keep your people engaged. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. We have some amazing guests with some incredibly good ideas about how to take your leadership to the next level. But I find people are looking for more practical ways of implementing those ideas. So we've created an individual subscription service specifically to focus on how to apply. You'll find more about that at www.outofthecomfortzone.com. We have two additional subscription services, one for the social group that want to exchange ideas and perspectives with a group and talk about career advancement. And we have a master's level for people who want to take a deeper dive, all on outofthecomfortzone.com. We hope you'll join us. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadership-forum.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, helping organizations get it and keep it. This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadership-forum.com. Now, 
back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back to the show. With me today is Darren Overfield, and we have been talking about the pandemic's impact on all of us, something Darren and I have been calling collective trauma. Now, not the same as PTSD, which is a clinical condition, but in many ways, we have all experienced trauma as you think about protecting our livelihood, protecting our um, health and well-being, avoiding death or avoiding that of our loved ones. It has been trauma in some form, and it's collective, meaning it's shared. We've all been through it, and we both believe as a result as organizations and as leaders, we're underestimating its impact on people and what we need to be doing as leaders to help people heal. So we were just talking about one of the most powerful things to do when people are going through a very difficult time or a traumatic experience is something that's seemingly very simple, and that is just listen. But it's listen with a specific intent, which is not about being right. It's listening to reflect back what you're hearing as the undertone of what's going on, just to reflect that back. It's not about asking the question or having the advice or having the answer or taking the responsibility to fix anything. It's just simply listening. And Darren was relating his experience of how powerful this simple technique had been for people calling into a crisis line. So um, I want to use another psychological word, Darren, grief. So one of the things that strikes me in the pandemic is that everybody has something to grieve. And I don't mean just death grief, but there have been lost events like lost graduations or proms or school years or family experiences or holidays or celebrations. I mean, there's a lot that's been lost. Why do you think it's important to talk about grief? Yeah, I think that's a really important thing to note. I mean, we've all lost something valuable to us. And that's something that, that, that can bring us together. Grieving losses is important because it essentially allows you to free up energy. I mean, you, you, you basically have energy that gets kind of bound up in an experience. And until you're able to grieve that thing that you've lost, it's hard to get that energy back. And so uh, it, it's going to be hard to, to reinvest the energy that you typically did at work when it's still invested in, you know, in my case, I have two teenage daughters what they've missed in school, oh, it's been so painful. It's, it's still hard. We're still grieving the, the, the losses that they've had. So it's important to be able to move beyond that by dealing with it, not just glossing over it. I mean, just being tough and gutting it out is not helpful. It, it's, it's really important. I'd say it's vital that we not gloss over it. At the same time, it's important that we don't get mired in this either, though. Uh, so we have to strike this balance. It's a bit paradoxical. On the one hand, we need to facilitate healing, but on the other hand, not get stuck in the process of, of healing. So figuring out where that line is, it's more of an art than a science, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. So how, what is the grieving, what does a normal grieving process look like? What would we expect people to need to do in order to grieve what's been lost? Yeah. So I'm far from an expert on grief, but I would say my experience, what I've seen with myself, what I've seen with, with clients is that it, it runs the gamut. And so grieving takes what grieving takes. And for me to be able to know what you might need is a bit presumptuous. I, I, I can't. But what I can know is that there's, there's a process that you go through and you see a person becoming more effective in what they're doing. 
And so I think that's going back to the conversation we had about helping people get professional help if they need it. One of the keys there is when they get stuck and they can't breathe or they can't move beyond something. So it's 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 looking at it over time and realizing, are, are you getting through this very traumatic event? But I don't know that there is a one size fits all uh, approach to this. And do you adhere to the standard process, you know, the sort of Sarah model, the I forget what all the acronyms for the anger, the, you know, resentment, all this. Do you think that's an accurate description or not? Um, so it's interesting. I think there are some people who go through all of those various stages. I mean, if you, if you look at what the, the researcher uh, Kubler-Ross did when, when she put that model together, it was in a very different context than, than what we're looking at here. But I think there's some commonality and like every framework, there are aspects of it that fit and some that don't. But I think what's what's useful about it, Wanda, in my experience, is thinking about the range of emotions that people experience and the range of things that might all be grief. So some people accept things pretty readily and move on. Other people are angry. Uh, other people are in denial. You know, I think that's actually one of the things to pay attention to in the pandemic. The person who says, no, I'm fine. Everything's good. No, nothing's changed. Uh, that that's that's just not objectively true. So understanding what's going on there is that just a front where they're 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 not wanting to talk about it, or do they really not? Are they really not able to deal with something traumatic that has happened to them? Th- those become important. So to me, those stages kind of help you clue into what's important. But I don't know that it's a linear. You know, you go through one before you go through two. Yeah. I like that, that there's a range of emotions, acceptance, anger, denial. Some people come out of it with a sense of hope that we rebuild better. We rebuild in a new way, mm-hmm. um, you know, a whole range of things that can happen in that one. And I think the whole point is just to allow people to have whatever emotion they are having about the experience and tell, make it okay to talk about it. That's right. Yeah, make it okay to talk about it. And I would say make it safe that it's okay to bring in what's going on outside to work. So even years from now, when when the pandemic is more in our rearview mirror, creating a culture where there's psychological safety, where you can talk about how you're really feeling about something, how you really see it, this is a good opportunity as leaders to start to lay the groundwork for that, that we'll be able to to use in, in other important ways down the road. Yeah, we know that that's one of the big drivers for team uh, performance and team effectiveness ultimately is that psychologically safe environment. So any advice on how to keep a manager from tipping into the getting mired in uh, the grieving process? Like, you know, any advice on that art? Yeah, well, like every art, it's uh, it's hard to know exactly what to do. I, I would say, again, this is where relationships are so important. Ask the people around you, you know, what? Are you getting what you need? When we meet as a team, are, are things working the way they should? Are, are there ways to do things better? Uh, one practice that I, I learned when I was at GE that, that I use with teams uh, is, is called plus delta. So the idea is the plus is what's good, what should we keep doing as a team or in a meeting? The delta is what should we change going forward? And so if, if you have a plus delta process around how we're engaging with each other, the process, if you as a leader are getting mired in something and we're having the same conversation, yeah, I know it's been hard, but can, can we please get out of second gear? If you've got good safety, good, good trust with your people, they're going to tell you that. It's an opportunity. And if you have a concern as a leader, it's an opportunity to ask that. Hey, I, I want to make sure that I'm connecting to what's going on 
emotionally that, that we're talking about that, but I also don't want to get stuck on it either. I know sometimes, you know, we getting into work is a good diversion. Am I striking the balance correctly? It's a way of showing vulnerability, asking a question about yourself, seeking some feedback. Because, you know, one of the things we know about feedback is in order to be able to have the permission to provide it, it helps if you've asked for it first. So as a leader, that's an opportunity to ask for some feedback. All right. So in and spending that time to engage with each other and to say, is this working? Is it not working? What do you need more of? What do you need less of? Those mm-hmm. kind of questions. And sometimes you'll know your team. It's fine to do that with the team as a whole. And sometimes you need to do that one-on-one with individuals. I think this is another case too, where trying to know everything is a really bad strategy. Mm-hmm. I think just being willing to ask, what do you need? Mm-hmm. What would be helpful to you? is also not a bad way to go with this one. All right. So we've all lost stuff. That means some of it has been painful loss and some of it has been really painful loss and various combinations between what I've lost, what my family's lost, what people around me have lost, Mm -hmm. and that there is a process for grieving that is not that we just shut off those emotions and pretend that they're not there and that we can get back to what we were doing before. There is no going back. There's only a going forward to something new. And recognizing that people have a range of emotions and creating space for people to talk about that. All right, cool. I want to turn to the next piece of data. So, uh, McKin- this is a study that you pointed out to me, Darren, a McKinsey study. So, this is in 2021. We've got 5,000 employees, 250 talent managers in five countries. So, that's a relatively good sample size and a very broad global perspective. All right. And they find that two things are really critical for employees, finding a sense of belonging and feeling valued by their managers. We're back to positive, unconditional positive regard, I think, there. That that matters to employees. But here's the kicker. Employers don't think that those two matter. So talk to me a little bit about how you interpret this data. Yeah, it's very interesting. I mean, that really three things came out for the employees that feeling valued by your manager. So that person that you report to and feeling valued by the organization, both of those matter. Uh, Being able to uh, be somebody who feels like you connect and you belong, that's important. So those those three things were really the the most important things for the employees. But when you look at the employers, uh, to your point, uh, feeling valued by a manager and having a sense of belonging, we're not on their radar screen at all. And feeling valued by the organization was only moderately so. What the employers focused on were more things like what you're being paid. Um, are you being promoted? More things that they can control, if you think about it. I mean, as an employer, you can increase somebody's pay. You can change the job that they're in. Um, and it, it really shows, I think, the importance of building the strong relationships, of asking questions, really drawing out other people. Because inevitably, you uh, none of us can see the world from someone else's point of view. We have to ask them what it looks like from their point of view. And so being able to, uh, to, to, to better understand that, I think, is really important. And the study pointed that out. I think that's fascinating because when I talk to the manager who's controlling the pay, those that have that power to do so, they believe that pay is the proxy for how valued are, you are. And employees will say, yes, pay me more, of course. And as they're walking out the door, they're going to say, because I get more money somewhere else. 
but I find what they really want is feeling valued. And rarely does that pay last for long in terms of feeling valued. Now, it feels good. Don't get me wrong, but it doesn't last. So that's your similar experience? Very similar experience. Uh, just I had a just recently had a, a coaching client who high potential, will, really well respected in her organization, and had an unfortunate situation occur. Wanted to talk to her manager about it. One of the things we did in our coaching work was to put together a list of questions, things she most wanted to know. When she had her performance review, she sent the questions ahead of time. Hey, I really want to talk about this. The manager never touched base on those things at all. Never even acknowledged receiving those. What she told me when she decided to take another job, leaving the company, was that made a huge difference. Very much reflects the McKinsey data. What she told the company, however, was, and and all of this is true, she said, I'm leaving because more flexibility and better pay. Yeah. So it's very interesting, the narratives that's, that's spoken in one arena versus another. That's what I'm hearing. That what am I supposed to say to you when you ask me why I'm leaving? I got a better promotion or a better pay or more flexibility. Those are acceptable answers. I'm not going to really tell you the the time to tell you that the reason I'm leaving is because my manager doesn't read my emails and doesn't pay any attention to my career development or what I want or what my concerns are, or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I don't feel like they care about me. And if you put this back in the context of trauma, Darren, I think all of us through this lens of collective trauma are starting to question, how am I spending my time? Am I spending my time in the ways that matter to me? And this is where when I don't have a leader who's listening, or I don't feel valued, or I don't feel connected to the team the way I get the joy from connecting the team, then why wouldn't I say, let me go someplace else? That's right. And, and we live in a day and age where we have technology that allows us to do that. I mean, there's, there's some opportunities that we didn't have before. And I think the pandemic has also opened us up to asking questions about what's really most important to us. Okay. So, wow. Two minutes to go. We've talked about how important it is to listen. We've talked about how important it is to create space to talk of the emotions associated with grief. We've talked about acknowledging the fact that we have been through collective trauma in its own form. Mm -hmm. And we've talked about showing employees that they're valued. And we've talked about responding to them, helping them connect to each other. Is there, you got one minute, any last piece of advice you want to give a manager? Yeah. The last thing that I would say that we haven't talked about really touched on is the idea of autonomy. And if you look at the research, everybody's talking about flexibility I think it's flexibility by way of autonomy. It's an interesting Harvard Business Review online uh, article recently that that, that really brought this out. But I, I think that's important. Giving people a voice, a say-so in, in returning to the office and how they work really is important. And so I think we can only underestimate how important autonomy is at this time when we do have to make decisions as a leader about when we return, how many days, those kinds of things. Yeah, simple things. Like you said, boundary conditions and what you're going to allow or not allow, but simple things is letting employees say, how do I want to do this? Let me give you advice on what would work for me. That kind of sense of control of some part of my work, I think is what we mean by autonomy. Exactly. Darren, much more to talk about on this one. Um, If people would like to get in touch with you, how shall they reach out to you? Uh, so I'd say my, my website's probably the easiest way. So overfieldleadership.com would be the, the best way to, to continue the dialogue. Uh, email right. is there. Yeah. 
overfieldleadership.com. All right, Darren, it's been a pleasure to have you on the show. I think what I'm taking away from this one is the importance of talking about the emotions that we're feeling, of labeling this as a traumatic experience that we've all been through, and of the power of listening and reflecting back as a manager, how much that can accomplish for what employees are actually looking for, feeling valued and the sense of belonging. So Darren, thank you. Thank you, Wanda. I appreciate the opportunity. All right. If you like what you've heard today, please like us on your favorite podcast server. And if you'd like to know more about how to apply these concepts and others, please check out our subscription service at outofthecomfortzone.com. We'll see you next week for another set of wisdom on how to get out of your comfort zone. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.